I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello again, welcome. This is the third of Brown People, the show where I speak to people of colour, either side of the Atlantic, because I'm a bit bi-coastal like that. Today, someone who I saw on the wheels of steel just on Saturday at a friend's birthday party. His name is Ben Bailey-Smith, a.k.a. Doc Brown. He's a British actor, rapper, comedian, writer, producer, you name it, he seems to have done it. He was born in London, in a very special place, Kilburn. Well, I was in the Kilburn adjacent almost living in Notting Hill. People in the UK recognise his face. He's been on Law and Order. And if you're a little kid, you'll know from the Four O'Clock Club. Ben Bailey-Smith, welcome to Brown People. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. You sit at the juxtaposition of, of kind of lots of things which I want to um, delve into. And number one, you were born and brought up in Kilburn, Brent. And that's like the fulcrum of New Britain, really. It's black, white, brown, Irish all sorts it is a special place isn't it it really is and it's a strange combination of being very special and very underappreciated it's, it's like the one corner of london that nobody seems to talk about care about or even know how to get to i find if you are beyond kilburn if you're like willsden Halsden, dollis hill wembley kneesden people are just like what how where why and you have to say okay camden or Labrick Grove. <laughs> so, you know, Camden, go west from there. Labrick Grove, go north from there. And it's this kind of weird juxtaposition of everything, the north and the west. And like you say, black, white, brown. For many decades, it's been not just the most diverse area per capita in the UK, but in Europe, the most languages spoken in a lot of ways. But yeah, like I say, underappreciated. You know what? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. I used to live in Notting Hill, and Notting Hill had the whole kind of luster of the carnival. The times when Notting Hill was the black capital of uh, the UK was long past by the time I got there, but it was still trading out on that to a little degree. And then we look at the history of the East End of London, and that's redolent with Jewish immigration, Eastern European immigration. Kilburn never gets mentioned. And as you said, it's probably the racially the most diverse bit of the UK. Tell us about home life growing up. Tell us about Ma and Pa. Yeah, as I was the, a, a representative of that sort of melting pot, if if you like, in, in that my dad was a white South Londoner. My mum was black Jamaican immigrant. She'd moved to the country not, not that long before I was born. She was 16 and she had us when she was 21 22 and then me 24 perhaps so she hadn't 
been here a decade, whereas my dad was a, a lot older, 30 years older than my mum, and so had the experienced London life to the fullest. He lived in Bristol for a little bit, but he was born in Croydon, grew up there. He was in Bristol, I think, in his 40s, but then back to London and northwest London, which is where they met. 30 years is a bit of a big age gap. Yeah, huge. In fact, my dad, he was on the beaches at Normandy as a teenager in the Second World War. So the spread is unique. I worked out when my daughter was born, when my first daughter was born, and she met my dad before he died. She's 18 now, and she could conceivably, women live longer than men, she could live into her 90s. She could live to 95, perhaps. She was born in 2005, so if she made it to 95, it would be the next millennium. And she could say with her hand on her heart, that she met someone who fought in the Second World War. And that spread just blows my mind a little bit. It's insane. There is an American president, I think it's John Tyler. He was a president in the 1840s. One of his grandsons only died two years ago. Wow. And it's just exactly a similar thing. Yeah, like a gateway yeah. to history. That's phenomenal. To finish that little sort of origin story is that they met in, in West Hampstead and ended up getting a flat together near Queen's Park. And then where, when I was born, they moved to Council Estate in Kilburn. That's how that worked. And then my brother came and we moved on again to, to Wilsden. But it was a very vibrant kind of household. And we had a lot of Irish friends, black friends and white English friends and Asian friends as well, Bangladeshi, Pakistani. This is an interesting time because the 80s, there was obviously a lot of division, but amongst the working classes, there was a lot of unification as well against the sort of the greater evil, so to speak, of a very neglectful government. So you had, for example, there was only one council. It was like the GLC, so it was all boroughs, was one council. He didn't have the breakup of councils that we have now. And within that, there was a lot of and also revolutionaries is probably too strong. People who questioned big government and how areas of London were getting completely and utterly forgotten. And I, yeah, I remember a lot of pulling together against the man, so to speak, back then when I was a kid. And I remember my parents being very active in all of that and all of their friends. They were, everybody was a sort of, everyone was concerned about their community and the community that their children were being raised in. So even amongst all the chaos of the early 80s, I, I always remember feeling very safe and cared for in, in Kilburn. Do you think that kind of sense of kind of care and safety that you felt really meant that you as an adult, you could pursue any career that you wanted? Because you are an everyman, aren't you? I sometimes balk at it when people say that about me because I just think it's really just writing and performing. I think if you're just a writer, then you would probably balk at performing. And if you're just a performer, you might balk at writing. But I think from the start, mm. writing my raps, it was like every rap I wrote, I knew at some point it was going to have to be performed. From a kid, I was writing and performing. And I always dreamt of being an actor. And as soon as it started to happen, I thought, why not write? my own stuff as as well and stand-up was a very similar experience to rap i'm writing these jokes but they're not going to be funny in a vacuum i have to perform them at some point for me 
people say you do this you do that you do this you do that but really i feel like i only do two things write and perform and i am proud of being able to do both of those things to a, a, a decent level but i don't think of myself as like a jack of all trades really i think there's a lot of other people in my industry who are, are quite like me if i came out and i was like an amazing opera singer and ballet dancer and could write incredible haikus and flower arrange and town plan then and incline mountains then i think definitely we could start having that conversation but really i, f I feel like i write i perform i write i don't do anything else really rage is key to rap i mean me i i couldn't get angry and start rapping about politics jamie you know I mean? i'm too much of a fence sitter it does make me wonder is there is there anything is there any one topic that could get me fired up enough you know and then i realized right there is one thing there's only one thing that could make me near homicidal yeah this is called my property right i don't know what the fuck i was thinking i bring you to my house as a friend in my kitchen you offered to make the tea Naturally, I say yes, you're my guest, so I take me off for gratefully. But then what I see made my heart burst. You only gone and put the fucking milk in first. <laughs> no, you must be out of your mind. Looks like you went and poured about half a pint. Now even with the boiling water, my tea's already lukewarm. Man, where the fuck were you born? Nah, you destroyed a thing that was sacred. Pour it down the sink. Let me show you how to make it. But why do you reckon that you've managed to make it? Because there are many yeah. black kids, mm. brown kids, mm. let's say from Kilburn, yeah. Neasden, Brent, wherever, who want to be rappers, yeah. want to be performers. Why did you make it out of your family? It's self-belief and confidence, definitely, which are instilled at an early age. Like I say, my house... And our flat as, as kids is always full, it was always vibrant, there's always stories, there's always lots of lots going on. And you had to assert yourself to be heard. And then my mum was a very assertive person and very clear in how she viewed the challenges that you face if you're black. And that was like a mantra that came very early. Then I had the additional bonus of not having either parent neither of them were bothered what I did as long as I did something had an interest I grew up with a lot of kids like me from London whose parents were African or kids like me from Kilburn mm -hmm. whose parents were Pakistani or Bangladeshi and me always being creative my parents going yeah just if that's what you want to do crack on whereas with a lot of their parents it was like all right you've had your fun now cut the shit <laughs> knuckle down get your sciences do this do some law do some accounting and I really felt that pressure on my friends with African parents and South Asian parents whereas I just didn't have I just never had that it was like I got to 15 16 and I was like I love doing drama I just want to do this and my parents were just like cool like sounds good so even my sister she just wanted to write and they're like all right <laughs> do you know what I mean and I think that's one of the little bonuses I had is having two working class parents from those specific backgrounds Jamaica and London, I think you go, if you're from a white working class family, anything's a bonus. If you're from a Jamaican uh, immigrant family, anything's a bonus. I don't think we've got these traditions of you must do this, you must do that. Do you know what I mean? It's, you're doing something.
that's good for me. No, and I think that worked for on both sides of my family really well. I had a lot of freedom. And then the third element is that my sister did it first. And when I saw her do it, I just thought anything's possible. It was a combination of those things, a lot of luck, but self-belief definitely and hard work. The younger Ben, was your sister's success nothing other than a magnet pull? Or was it some level of pressure? Was it some level of, she's done it, mm. I've got to be able to do it too? Yeah, I I would say, weirdly, and honestly, is hand on my heart, swear on my kids, I never felt pressure or jealousy or a, a need to match her or anything like that. And I can say that with certainty because I know that if she was a rapper or a comedian or an actor, I think I would be jealous or I would feel pressure or I would feel competition. I would. The fact that she was doing this thing that I still can't get my head around, which is writing these incredible novels. Four years of research, prepping, planning, editing, hundreds of thousands of words. I just, like a magician, I was like, I can't do that. So it was more just the success thing. It was more just the fact that she does this for a living. She's an artist for a living. I want to do that. I want to be an artist for a living. But yeah, if I was like, I'm going to be a novelist, I think it would have been massive. Yeah, I I think I would have struggled. But the fact that it was, in my eyes, so different, it was purely something to celebrate and to feed off of. Do you know what I mean? Really straightforward journey for me emotionally that lightning struck twice in your family and a family which you said was full of love and security and two characters a mother and father who at least on the surface came from very different traditions at least on the surface Mm. anyway do you think your father understood the path in terms of your identity that you your sister your other brother were going to embark on because I know that my my father gave me the speech about 14, be mindful of, of the police, all of that, right? How are the people going to perceive you, etc.? And I needed to hear that from my father. Could your father give you, or did he give you, that talk, considering at least the, your skin colour is very different to his? Mm. I, it's impossible for me to speculate on whether he felt it deep down if you look at the just the facts he was 52 when i was born he'd lived through the second world war he fought fascism Mm. then he starts going out with this very young black woman who still sounds still sounds patois and it's in a time of intense racial division in the uk and the rise of fascism the rise of the right the rise of racism the end of the 70s so i'm just looking at that and i'm thinking hey you didn't have to do that <laughs> you have to put yourself on the firing line like that when you're a white person you could just have an easy life just go find a white girl and and just settle down but i think something about the evil that he saw as a young man made him a pacifist he's not interested in celebrating war or his achievements as a soldier it made him question the value in demonizing people because the last time he saw a group saying hey this other group is evil or this other group is bad six million people were murdered do you know what i mean 
I think, like I say, I, I can't do anything but speculate because it was so long ago. But I believe that he would have had the experience required of every white person to, to understand what it is to be hated, to be a minority, to be feared or to be threatened by. And I think he got that. And I think he experienced it firsthand. They divorced by the time I was 12. So really my relationship with my dad was based on the early years of my life. And there was still a period where you would get abuse in the streets sometimes, especially if mixed race families. There's something that a lot of people didn't like on both sides about mixed race families because they saw them as like the beginning of the end. Oh my God, look at what's happening now. They're actually like, marrying each other and having little mongrel children oh my god so he had to put up with a lot of that shit and he learned a lot from that i think nobody can ever understand the the true feeling of or the subtleties of everyday racism and, unless they experience it that said i think my dad fully respected it saw it got that it was happening and understood that it was wrong and needed fighting against but yeah absolutely the the ins and outs of it the nitty-gritty of it was all down to my mom she's the one that gave me the talk that your dad gave you she taught me to take the numbers on the shoulders of police when i was getting harassed constantly as a teenager falsely arrested all sorts of bullshit she taught me all that stuff she taught me that we we're gonna have to work twice as hard as everybody else we're gonna have to keep surprising people and I, I took that stuff to heart and I still utilize all of those skills to this day but uh, yeah you can't put a price on a, a full f family unit I know it broke down when I was 12 but the early years are the most crucial part of your life and in those early years I had two revolutionary parents had visions of a future that was better than their past and that's all you want really as a kid but we went through a number of unique experiences together and in the wider world of Kilburn and northwest London we saw a lot of stuff we experienced a lot of stuff went through a lot of stuff and that's why Zadie and I became storytellers because what else would we be we had so many stories to tell to share and yeah I think the some of the more unique elements of our experiences growing up we didn't realize were that way until we shared them and that's when we probably thought oh actually this is quite interesting maybe there's other people like us out there or if they're not like us maybe they'd be interested in hearing it in what it's like to be this to have come from this and i think she was vindicated with white teeth and nw and a bunch of other stuff that she's written you speak really beautifully, not only about your ma and pa, but also your sister. But there's a deep understanding of your place, your family's place within a wider society. And I was really struck. I interviewed a American comedian, Eddie Brill, last year. And it occurred to me that this guy is a philosopher. Hmm. And I think, and whilst I think Eddie is, I think, all comedians are philosophers forward slash sociologists because actually to understand humor and people it's a lot of watching you're a mirror aren't you 
uh, that you are reflecting back the absurdities, the idiosyncrasies, the the quirkiness of humanity. But it's been able to understand that and, and, and encapsulate that. And whether you're a rapper, a writer, a comedian, you need to embody those skills to be able to distill your place and, and, and society around it. So one of the things that's really kind of fascinated me about your work and your journey is your podcast, mm. which you've been doing, Shrink the Box, because it's self-evident that, that you're a deep thinker. No, I was no listen, say, like, tell me I'm talking nonsense. No, oh, no, it's very interesting. Go on. I was just going to interject to, just to say I don't really know what else you can be. Like at this stage in history where we're at, if you're not thinking mm. deeply about what's going on, I just don't understand how you exist. But then I suppose the idea, the old adage that ignorance is bliss is true. It is a lot easier just to play Candy Crush and be on TikTok all day and take pictures of yourself and crop them and build a little cartoon avatar and go and buy more shit. That's what our phones are telling us all day long, just keep buying. And it eases the the bigger questions. You don't really have to touch on them because you just trundle along. But I just think it, there's too much. There's too much going on to, to not discuss and not think about. I think like being called a deep thinker, I'm flattered, but I'm like, isn't everybody? Why isn't? And if not, then why not? <laughs> I'll tell you why not. Because we are being distracted by yeah. our phones, our TVs telling us to consume all the time, that we always yeah. need the new shiny thing. Yeah. And that gets us away from being grounded and rooted and actually connecting w with each other. As, as men... We are supposed to be the sex that thinks the least about empathy and connecting with others. And as black men. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Generally, we don't go in for things like therapy. We don't do that kind of self-work, at least traditionally. To see a black man like you who's, yeah, I do therapy. I want to talk about therapy. I want to deeply think about my position, my family's position, where I come from, mm -hmm. and how wider society is impacted on that and how potentially we have. It's refreshing. Us men, we don't talk about our feelings generally. Yeah. Let alone black men. We don't do that. I agree with that. We just got to man up. That's what we're expected to do. And I, with that show, I really just want to debunk the myth that therapy is for the weak-minded or the weak-hearted or the desperate. And also that it's um, prohibitively expensive because it's not. I advertise a service called BetterHelp on the show, which is means-tested. And you can get the, the weekly therapy for as cheap as like £30 a week. It's insane. So there isn't really an excuse if you feel that you need it. And even if you feel that you don't, it's worth experimenting with just to have somebody there who has no dog in your fight, no emotions tied up in what you're telling them, is it's an incredibly freeing 
profoundly freeing experience like you can really let go there's no comeback nobody's gonna say oh why'd you say this why oh my god i can't believe this i can't believe that everything about it is obviously completely private and, and anonymous so you can really let those fears and vulnerabilities out but like you say one of the pressures one of the additional pressures of being black is often hiding a vulnerability because it's tough out there man it's hard to it's still in 2023 it's hard to be fucking black do you know what I mean the last thing we want to do instinctively is go oh and I'm I'm also I'm soft shelled you can pierce this exterior anytime you want no we're gonna say hey fuck mm. you don't come over here I'm good don't worry about me and you see it represented but it's changing Yo, I'm like John Lennon Except I do imagine there's a heaven Somewhere everyone is welcome All my multicultural brethren Where hate is outdated Today, love's the word Even for people from Luxembourg Or maybe like some other countries that you might ignore Tonga, never thought of in my life before But if I met a guy from Tonga Then we'd stop and we'd speak Influent Tongalese on the quality street Yep, acceptance See that Kenyan guy with mental eyes he might be totally normal, you can't generalize Black people aren't crazy, fat people aren't lazy And dwarves aren't babies, you can't just pick them up They got rights, and anyway, don't assume you could They're not light, I learned the hard way Don't give a damn if you're Russian or you're Spanish Your comrades, compadres, you could be a half gay woman with a dark face One leg, no legs, long as you've got a heart Hey, transgender, gay, straight, lesbians Whatever, whoever, hey mate, let's be friends But just friends, we want you to be where you're properly free Obviously, it's a quality street, believe You know the deal there, everything is real fair Take a ride on my equal opportunity wheelchair Your mum's Jamaican, my parents are Jamaican I'm within the whole kind of Jamaican culture there's rastafarians and rastafarians have always had this level of consciousness but it's the eye being with the wider eye with the group as opposed to actually self-work on angst so it's an interesting juxtaposition what was the thing which first drove you to thinking what i need to sit down and talk to somebody i need therapy general anxiety so big part of it is parenting you suddenly realize, oh my God, it's not just about me. Before I had kids, I didn't think too deeply about the future. I just thought it'll work itself out. It'll work itself out and it'll be okay. When my first daughter was born, I didn't even really use the internet. I didn't have a smartphone. So it was still like life was still how I recognized it from when I was a kid. So I thought, yeah, I could do this parenting thing. But then the internet explosion the re realization of climate change like when i was a kid there was like vague talk about the ozone layer and there's like a little hole and we can probably fix it if we stop using links africa do you know what i mean <laughs> and i just thought it was like straightforward and then all of a sudden it's no this is the end of the world and it's in the news every day my daughter became a vegan she's been a vegan for nearly four years it's, it's not a joke it's not a joke to these kids they're scared and that scared me because i'm like you gotta be the superhero as a parent the reassurer which is easy to do when they're little but as they get older it's like you can't sugarcoat this shit anymore like the world's a scary place and that really threw me into into sort of catastrophizing became a big habit oh, but if this thing happens then this terrible thing will happen then that terrible thing will happen they get caught up in tied up in knots and on top of that 
in my career getting better and better jobs and more visibility just that feeling of oh god like all these people expect me to deliver the fans the audience my children is overwhelming so it was more a combination of a lot of those things and therapists are great because you tell them all this oh my god like what if i do this i did this thing and then what if this happens and they often go okay has it happened yet no but if it does then what am i going to do i'm going to lose everything and they go yeah but it hasn't happened <laughs> so what can we do to maybe avoid it occurring what can we do in your day-to-day -day approach to life and to people and you start to realize wow so many of your anxieties so many of your fears are yet to be manifested that's why they're scary because it's the unknown and that's exactly what we're scared of the Blair Witch Project scared me so much when it first came out because you just didn't see anything it was just the woods <laughs> and I was like oh my god but what's in the woods we're not showing you <laughs> it's just no you've got to show me like I need to know because now my fear is just running around completely untethered thinking of worse than worse just the most horrible thing imaginable and that's the interesting thing about fear when you actually look at it in black and white for what it is what is it that i am scared of can i approach it head on or will that be dangerous can i strengthen myself in order to approach it at some point the answer is yes to both of those you can confront it head on if you feel ready if you don't there are tools that you can develop to make yourself ready or to even get to a place where actually i'm not that scared of that anymore it's just it's a part of life that i can't control one of the things a lot of parents have is an obsession with control. And I think if you're someone like me who does the kind of jobs I do and you're like a, a Virgo obsessed with getting everything right, perfectionist, these things can be quite damaging. You can't control everything. All you can control is yourself, your own behavior, how you act and how you react. The rest of the world is going to be the rest of the world. You can disagree with Putin until the cows come home it doesn't mean he's going to stop bombing Ukraine Do you know what I mean you could sell your house and put all your money into fighting him going against him it's not going to make any difference you start to think of things in a micro way instead the other day I didn't see this guy wanting to pull out into cut across my lane to turn left off of off of Euston Road I didn't see him because I was focused on this cyclist who was like weaving in and out of my blind spots and I should have stopped and given this guy, given way so he could cut across, but I didn't. And when he, I'd gone past him and he did come past me, but from behind, he came up alongside me and gave me the finger, which made me upset. And I thought about it for a while and I talked about it with my wife. And I was like, because at first I was like, oh, fuck him. And then I was like, no, actually, this is the issue. It's, it's micro, like it's not macro, it's micro. It, the, the, the little things that you can do to change the world. If he flips me off and I get upset, then I'm driving aggressively and perhaps I annoy someone else and ruin their morning. But perhaps there's more going on in their life than's going on in mine than's going on in the guy that flipped me off. Perhaps they're, they've just left their house having a massive argument with their husband or wife and they're fucking driving erratically. Perhaps the me being mean to them was the last straw. And now they're driving like a lunatic 
and a kid comes out into the road and they hit the kid because they're fucking full of rage and they're not focusing it's not karmic it's logic it's the theory of relativity every action has a positive or negative reaction that's not me that's einstein and he's right so it's tiny things you do have a knock-on effect and i think once you start to appreciate that not in a namby-pamby spiritual hippie way just in a very logical way once you start to appreciate that your actions have effects they have cause and effect you start to temper those reactions start to think a little more deeply about how you choose to carry yourself how you choose to speak and how you choose to treat other people this is a, a, a science that you've heard in a million different ways in spiritual terms in the bible do unto others as you would have unto yourself you hear it in karmic terms buddhist terms you hear it in so many different ways and i think that's because there's a universal truth to it so it, it's not about what you believe so it's just about facts it's about what is if you're a dick to me now i leave this conversation feeling head up that's just a fact and then the next person i speak to i'll probably be short with them just this cause and effect do you know what i'm saying and i think deep down humanity knows this but we just we push against it all the time because we're selfish and we're greedy and we're always in a rush but it's all there you can see it in the oldest texts the torah the bible the quran they're all essentially the same they all essentially say don't be a dick because people need love <laughs> and so do you that's what they all say people need love they need empathy but also they need grace we need to give people grace if somebody cuts you up in the street you're right as to your point you don't know what day they've had just give them the grace to see so you know what okay you breathe they breathe we can go about, go about our business <laughs> Rather good new Netflix series, Beef, starts exactly the same yeah, way, doesn't it? Which is about it. I need to watch it. It's very good. I'm only halfway through episode one already. I'm gripped. And it's, yeah, the guy's having a bad day and someone cuts him up in the parking lot. <laughs> the beef starts. Yeah, it's, it escalates. My, my girl's watching it. Tells us a lot about the human condition and us being time poor and feeling like we are powerless. Mm. And then in this one little sphere when somebody do does you a little bit of a, a wrong then you just overreact it's classic road rage beef it, it, it's very good very good indeed what makes you happy a happy home makes me very happy it's something i, I used to take for granted when i was like living out of city. ben let me ask you the question again sir. okay what makes you happy outside of home and your family, because you've spoken a lot about mom, dad, your sister, your yep. daughter, and you mentioned your wife. Outside of those people that love you, what makes you happy? Oh, man, I love making people laugh. It's one of the great joys. I like, or I don't like, I love to finish a task. That feeling of, you've nailed it. Whether it's good or bad, you'll get the feedback. Like, when I finished my children's book, took me like a year and a half, that feeling. It's amazing finishing a song finishing a script just finishing i just it's just a, a beautiful moment i like walk out into the world just humming a tune to myself just i feel like oh i can go to the pub and have a pint of guinness and just feel really good about myself i love those moments i love hampstead heath i love walking around there i love i love spending a day there especially in the winter when no one's there when it's sunny it's just too full 
too full of well-dressed show-offs. <laughs> I like going when it's cold and <laughs> like just going off-piste into the woods with my dog and just, yeah, vibing out. Like, love that. I love... Can't mention your dog. Ben, you can't mention your dog because your dog loves you. Oh, okay. Your dog yeah, loves okay. you. She can't uh, yeah, no, She definitely does too much. I tell you what, I love, I love getting on a plane and jumping out in a place where I've never been before, where it's, your senses are up because everything's just, it's the same, but it's different. It's just slightly strange in some way. And you're like, at some point this will become familiar, but right now I've just got no idea where I am. It's, it's really an exciting feeling and a reminder of how small and how big the world is. I love that feeling. I love the last 20 pages of a book where it's, it's so good that you start to ration it. You just do like a page and a half each night because you don't want it to end. And then putting that book on the bookshelf. I love that. I love hearing a song that I neglected over years and it pops back up either on a shuffle or find an old mix that I made and then fall in love with that song all over again is is a wonderful experience I love that that enough that's quite a lot of things that was a few things and <laughs> the shuffle many things that resonated with me I, I travel a lot and I need to look at my carbon footprint so getting off a plane somewhere new 100% 100% Last year, I traveled to Vienna for the first time, went to Budapest. Mm, I'd love to go. Um, and Budapest, big thumbs up. Vienna, no disrespect to any Austrians listening, little bit of a letdown. I'm a big history bore, Ben. So that to go to the seat of the Habsburg family and see all those palaces. But Vienna had a feeling of the air has slightly come out of the balloon. Imperial grandeur, which has faded. Mm. Whereas Budapest was confident and bustling. So the Danube goes right in the middle of the city. You've got Buda and Pest. So the one side of the city has commanding views of the other and is incredibly mm. old and charming. Then the other side is new and uh, Budapest we went to Vienna, then drove to Budapest. We stayed in Vienna for how many days? We should have done it the other way around. The sense of going somewhere new when you get out of the airport, right? Because airports are this kind of homogenized place, and you only get little hints that you really are somewhere else. Mm. But then you get out the airport, and then you breathe that air, and you, the taxis are a different color, and the, for, the fauna and the fauna is all different. I love that. I love that. That's what I mean. And also, that stuff. The, the, the shuffle, the best invention put on Spotify or any of those music services, because for that exact same reason which you said, because it just brings up stuff which you haven't listened to. You're like, that tune was good. Yeah. That reminds me of being back at school or dancing with my friends at this rave or go to that club or... It just forces you in the juxtaposition of two songs, which you wouldn't even necessarily put back to back, makes you go, oh my gosh. Yeah, th this is, and the shuffle on that every day gives me serendipity. Yeah. Every day I go, oh my gosh. And it has to be said, 
maybe to start to wind down this conversation, I, not, I can keep going, but I'm fully aware that I'm taking up your time. Tell you a song which I've rediscovered. Luther Vandross, Never Too Much. Hated that when it first came out. It was, for me, too cheesy by half, too smooth, and you played it the other day. And you know what? The bass is good. The sentiment is fantastic. A thousand wishes of you is now. It's it's a great song. Listening to it being played on Saturday night, I shazammed it, then it came on it in the car. Of course, I knew the song, but it's just to have it. And then it came on in the car the other day. I was belting out that. It surprised me how many of the lyrics of that song I actually knew, considering I never <laughs> liked the song before. Beautiful song, man. It's beautiful. I, it's w- one of those songs that's been with me pretty much her whole life because my mum was a big Luther fan she loved all that 80s soul and R&B always had that it's amazing when you think about the songs that go back all the way to being in in utero being a fetus there's songs that you know from then that really blows my mind Mm. like there are reggae songs that I know from being a toddler I still love like they're not old to me at all like greetings by half pint or girly girly by sophia george or some of those really early 80s reggae songs or or late 70s that were just played on loop in my house i still love them now audrey hall one dance won't do or my dad's stuff like bob dylan johnny cash songs there are still they still get a reaction from me when they pop up now it's incredible music is one of the most powerful creations of, of, of humanity. One of the most unique, the ones that you just can't seem to touch. You can't, it's, it's beyond any scientific creation. It's beyond anything that we've done. It's just, it just is. It's just the emotions that you get from it. It's, I love that we can't work out what it is. It's brilliant. It's a spiritual and emotional fingerprint of our lives, the, the, the music that moves us. And Police and Thieves, Yeah, one, it just reminds me of being in the back of my dad's Triumph Toledo, circa 1977, and he had this cassette tape. And I don't know if it was a C60 or a C, C90, but the same old tunes would play over and Police yeah. and Thieves, Junior Mervyn was, was one of them. And then you were playing it last Saturday and I had to say to myself does this man have the racial credentials to play such a tune <laughs> and you know what uh, Ben Bailey Smith you absolutely do so t- I take my hat off to you sir thank you for coming on to Brown People and um, talking about your family and talking about your mother and father with such love and, and reverence because not all of us are fortunate enough to have good parents uh, that love us and that have guided us but you most definitely did and and obviously you're paying that forward with your family and big ups to you props whatever you do in the future can i just say is it the split you played an actor in the split you were nasty in that i couldn't stand you in that you sir are a bloody good actor job well you made my skin crawl that was a look that was a great role a 10 out of 10 thank you see you again 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.